Creative Babble. Ever have one of those days where you just want to say, forget it, I quit? A day when you just want to leave everything behind? I know I've thought about starting a new career, but what would I do? I only have two skills, marketing and telling freaky stories on the radio. But Mark Ruskin actually did it. He quit his job as an assistant DA in Brooklyn. An assistant DA in New York, he could have had a dream legal career, working at some fancy law firm, making tons of money. So what did he do after giving up his career as a powerful attorney? Well, he joined the FBI Academy. Why did he join the FBI? Well, in order to prosecute criminals, you have to catch them first. It didn't take long for Mark to become an undercover agent. For 27 years, he slipped into various different characters, busting criminals ranging from drug dealers to Wall Street insiders. At one point, Mark was juggling three or four cases at a time, switching back and forth between identities. He wrote a book about his time at the FBI, appropriately titled The Pretender. When I first discovered his book, I immediately shot him a message. Luckily for me, he agreed to share some of his stories. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. My first assignment was to San Juan, Puerto Rico. In the late 80s and early 90s, San Juan, Puerto Rico had one of the highest murder rates of any U.S. city. Some of the violence can be blamed on the Macheteros, a separatist group actively trying to make Puerto Rico an independent country. So now I had gone from being an attorney in New York, you know, where the biggest thing I had to worry about was a paper cut and poking myself with a pencil in the courtroom, to now I was in the streets of San Juan, Puerto Rico, as a combatant against the Macheteros in their war for liberation. We learned at one point that the Macheteros had a plot to assassinate an FBI agent. The problem was we didn't know who the FBI agent was. The Macheteros had the FBI on edge. At the time, Mark was living in a condo by the beach along with four other FBI agents. One evening, I'm driving back home, it's dark, and as I pull into the cul-de-sac, I see to my right, there's a car parked, engines off, the lights are off, and there's the silhouettes of two men inside the car. Like, what do I do? Do I go into the building, or do I confront the situation? I say, hey, walk away, Mark. You seem like a really smart guy. You, you can always go back and become some big shot attorney. You don't need this. I got out of my car. I took out my 357 Magnum, which was a large frame weapon. It was kind of like a dirty, hairy type of revolver, stainless steel. And I started to walk towards the car with the uh, gun slightly extended. You know, the idea being that I was going to confront whatever threat there was and also confront my own fears at the same time. I walked slowly towards the car. I was clearly visible to them. I must have walked maybe 10 yards 
before suddenly the engine burst to life and slowly they put their car into reverse, slowly backed up and drove off. And that was the end of it. That was, they never came back. It was like a real transition point because up to that point, this was maybe was like three or four months on, into my tour of duty there. At the beginning, I had some thoughts that maybe I had gotten into the wrong career. Mark Ruskin is a thin, wiry guy, about 5'9", with dirty blonde hair and blue eyes. He looks like an unassuming white guy. But that look wasn't going to get him very far on the streets of San Juan. So he grew a ponytail and kept a couple days' growth of beard and wore three to four gold chains around his neck and wrist, all so that he could blend in with the bad guys. When I first arrived in San Juan, my supervisor, John Navarretti, he called me into his office and he said, in order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. And he gave me an example. He said, if you're looking for a fugitive from New York and you go out into the, to buy, uh, the buyer mall and interviewing people and you tell them you're looking for a bank robbery fugitive, you're going to get a bunch of blank stares. But if you tell them you're looking for a fugitive for a child molestation and sexual assault of a minor, you're going to get cooperation. So sometimes you're going to have to bend the truth a bit. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. His next undercover assignment was a deep cover operation inside Wall Street. His job was to bust up front-running schemes. Front-running is when a broker or a trader uses advanced knowledge of a customer's orders. So what they do is that they purchase a stock at a lower price and then turn in the customer's order, which drives up the share price. The broker sells his share and makes a profit off the client. In order to fit in with the Wall Street crowd, Mark Ruskin needed a new identity. His new name was H. Mark Renard. Renard means fox in French. His new identity took about six months to create. He had to get a new social security card, license, bank account, pretty much everything. And he also needed to learn what the heck he was talking about. You had to learn a lot about trading. I mean, you even got your broker's license. I mean, that it doesn't seem easy. I mean, people make careers out of that, and, and it seemed like you just picked it up. I knew nothing about finance when I volunteered for that case, but I really wanted to work the case and was w- w- willing to work hard and to learn. Mark started off as a clerk on the floor of the exchange. So as a clerk, I learned how things worked, and I also studied texts on, on trading to the point where a year later, I was able to pass the broker's exam, both the practical exam and the written exam, and obtain a, a, a license as a commodities broker. And I have to tell you, now I've forgotten 99% of it. <laughs> as part of the new role, he lived in a swanky New York apartment and drove around in a Mercedes Benz, courtesy of the FBI's seized property unit. Everything was going great, until one day, there was a problem with his application for the New York Merchantile Exchange, or better known as NYMEX. And I received a phone call at my undercover apartment from the secretary of the general counsel of the NYMEX. And I assumed that they were calling me in for some formalities that had to be taken care of before I could actually occupy the seat. So I arrived, uh, this was in the old World Trade Center, which still existed, this was you know, pre uh, Pre-911, I arrived for the meeting, and uh, 
she told me, she said, you know, uh, Mr. Renard, I think we have a few problems with your application here for the seat. We, we have reason to believe that uh, your entire application may be a fabrication. You have to understand, Mark Ruskin, or H. Mark Renard, has been undercover for almost a year now. This can't be good. But I kept a cool exterior, and I responded, well, you are clearly mistaken. Uh, everything, every word on this application is the truth, and if you need any corroboration, I'll be happy to provide it. And otherwise, uh, I don't understand what the, what the issue is. So she was taken a little back, aback. I think she'd expected me to fold you know, like a cheap camera. She asked me if I could return in a half an hour. I said, of course, no problem. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be able to resolve this. Mark leaves her office and rushes for a payphone. He calls his supervisor and tells him to figure out what's going on on his end so he could put out the fire. Mark returns to her office, and now the vice president for the New York Mercantile Exchange was there. And he tells me, well, not only do we have reason to think that uh, your entire application is a fabrication, but we also have reason to believe that you are, in fact, a federal agent. So I scoffed. I said, a federal agent? Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know, I'm not even, a, and also a former, a former prosecutor, he tells me. So they, they really had, had me nailed. But I, I responded, a, a, a prosecutor, I'm not even a lawyer. And what I did is I, I, told, I demanded that whoever made this accusation confront me right now. I said, if you, if whoever's, whoever's telling you this uh, obviously has made a mistake. And why don't you bring them in right here, right now to this office. Once they see me up close, they'll realize they've mistaken me for somebody else, obviously completely different, and I can go about my business. So now they became very apologetic. I think they began to have doubts about the information that they had gotten because they hadn't expected such a uh, vehement denial and, so, and a demand for, for, for confrontation. It was the end of the week, so they had him come back on Monday. So they told me, you know, come in on, on back on the next business day. We'll arrange a meeting with that person. We'll get everything clarified, and you can go back to trading. So I think at this point, they believed me. I asked Mark, did you show signs you were nervous? Well, this is the thing. On the exterior, I was cool yet offended. You know, I was appropriately insulted. You know, they were accusing me of being... A, a federal agent, in, in, in my game book, uh, that was uh, an insult. So uh, they were insulting me, basically, and I, uh, I acted insulted and annoyed. You know, I'm, I'm an arrogant and wealthy businessman, and they're basically accusing me of being some smarmy federal agent. So uh, uh, I, I, I laid it on a little thick, perhaps, but it worked. I mean, on the inside, you know, the adrenaline was pumping 100%. Apparently, what happened afterwards, behind the scenes, is that they went to the person who had reportedly identified me, and they told her, you better be damn sure about what you said, because it looks like this guy is not who you're saying he is. It turns out that the woman who exposed him was a former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, it was now working at the New York Mercantile Exchange. The college that I had written down as being my college got 
phone calls. The DA's office was getting phone calls and they were getting phone calls from this woman. So apparently she'd seen me on the floor of the exchange and had recognized me. And instead of coming up to me and saying, hey, Mark, what are you doing here? She went to her bosses to get brownie points and said, hey, I, I think there's a federal agent on the floor. So she starts calling around to see, uh, to try and, she calls the DA's office, tries to find out some information. The DA's office turned around and called the FBI and spoke to my supervisors. And once we, once we knew that she was calling around and, and had my true name and my fictitious name, we knew that the case was over. Yeah, it was frustrating for me and a lot of people because there was a whole team of people working on the case and a lot of money had been spent on it. So, uh, and I, I, you know, I had visions of glory. I thought this was case was going to go on for three, four years. There would be, you know, 50 or 60 brokers arrested for fraud. And, uh, it would, you know, that my first long-term undercover op would be a great success. And instead, you know, it went down in flames. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a disappointment. Well, and, you know, there's no handbook, right? It's all... You call it on-the-job training. You have to, like, figure this thing out as you go along. Yeah. When I started, when you to do undercover work, someone would select you to do a, a case, you know, or ask if you'd be willing to work an undercover operation. I said yes, and then everything from then on, it was, it was uh, I had to figure out how to do it. Nowadays, the FBI has a school. It, it, got, it has a two-week certification program where the selection is very rigorous. The school itself is very, very difficult, and a lot of people wash out, and those who succeed are certified to become undercover agents. And in fact, I was involved for a few years in the process of selecting young agents to do undercover work. So now they receive training, and they, had, and they have people like myself who are experienced undercovers providing the training. So it's, it's become... Uh, it's become a organized and systematized process, and it's 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 safer for the for the agents because uh, in, in my day, if you made a mistake, uh, you know the consequences could be kind of melancholy. The Wall Street case was just a dress rehearsal for Mark. His future cases will prove to be a lot more dangerous. That since it was a white-collar case, the risks were not that significant. If, if something went wrong, I wasn't going to get whacked. So I learned to live a lie in a training ground that was relatively low risk. And then later on in my career, you know, not that much later on, a couple of years, when I was working cases which did, in fact, involve some physical risk, by that time I had learned to live a lie and to do it successfully. It was time for Mark to move on. His next assignment required him to infiltrate and start doing business with a dangerous crime boss. I went from Wall Street to the mean streets. That was how I would describe my transition from one case to the other. Next time on Pretend Radio, we'll meet Alex Perez. Alex Perez is Mark's new character. And let me tell you, things are about to get pretty intense. There were mob guys, you know, mafia guys, terrorists, fugitives who were being arrested. And in their possession, they had wallets which contained driver's licenses, social security cards, 
green cards, all kinds of documents in fictitious names, but the documents were not forged. They were legitimate real documents. There were real driver's licenses issued by DMV and real green cards issued by immigration. So what I had to do was a cold approach, which is in undercover cases is the most difficult. To approach someone without an introduction who's operating in a criminal environment is, is really a challenge. So Mahmoud looks at me, but he's still glaring. And then he turns to one of the guys behind him and he barks some orders in Arabic. So I'm thinking to myself, did Mahmoud just tell him, you know, get the Uzis and pull the van up by the back door, you know, like so we can dispose of these two guys. These stories are on Mark Ruskin's new book titled The Pretender. I read it cover to cover and I highly recommend it. The stories we're talking about here are just the beginning of his 27 years undercover. This book is part Scarface, Wolf of Wall Street, and Breaking Bad, all rolled into one. You can find The Pretender on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Also, a special thanks to St. Martin's Press for letting me share Mark's story with you. I also want to give a shout out to some of my fellow podcasters who have helped me throughout the season. I want to thank my friends at North Carolina Podcast Meetup, especially Luke Apps at Triangle Tactical Podcast, El Martinez with Couple Money Podcast, the guys at The Live Canary, and John Taylor with The Twisted Podcast. You guys have pushed me from the very start, and I really appreciate it. Also, I want to thank some of my new podcasting friends who I've never really met in person, but have great shows, like TJ Cunningham with Pints and Puzzles, Mike Brown with the Pleasing Terrors podcast, and Melissa and Mandy with the Moms and Murder podcast. They have been so great, and you guys should check out their shows. I'll post the links in the show notes. But most importantly, I want to thank someone who doesn't produce a podcast, but has been a huge part of the show. And that's my editor-in-chief, Allison Leva. Yes, my beautiful wife, who has listened to me talk about this podcast 24-7. Reads all my scripts, listens to my shows, and tells me where I screwed up. Thank you for everything you do, and I love you too much. I'll see you next time for part two of The Pretender. Take care. Created by